Welcome to Fellow Fellow, a new podcast from Harvard Kennedy School's Technology and Public Purpose Project. I'm your host, Mark Lerner, and I'm a fellow at the Tech Project. In this podcast, I interview my fellow fellows about their research and perspectives on some of the most interesting challenges at the intersection of technology and society. Really happy to be here with a good friend and former coworker, and I guess current coworker in a way, Claire mm-hmm. Bailey. Um, Hello. Claire, so nice to have you here. Um, I know that, you know, given the premise of the entire podcast, folks already know that you're a fellow of mine uh, or a fellow fellow at the Technology and Public Purpose Project. Uh, people might not know that you most recently served as the director of product for the U.S. Digital Service, working under the White House to improve how the government makes and uses technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I worked together there. It was super fun to meet you there and happy that we can continue working together. And of course, today we're talking about your project at TAP, which is sexual censorship on social media. Uh, really excited to dive into this conversation. So could you maybe start just by giving a little bit more of an intro into the project? For sure. So the best way I'd like to intro this is by describing a kind of a day I had back in October of 2019. I ran across two news articles that I read. Um, one was a summary on the New York Times of a speech that Zuckerberg gave at Georgetown, where he was basically doubling down on their commitment to free speech in the wake of calls to remove various kinds of hate and violent content from the platform. It was just like free speech is most important, more important than anything else. We got to hold to it. The other article was from a much smaller news outlet, and it was talking about how Facebook and Instagram had recently added the eggplant, peach, and water droplets emoji to their list of what they considered sexually suggestive content for the purpose of solicitation. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, This does not mean, I want to be clear, this does not mean that those emojis are banned from the platform. You can certainly use them. Uh, For the purpose of solicitation means that you can ask someone if they would like to have sex on Facebook, and that's fine, but you cannot say would you like to have sex and then use an eggplant, peach, and water drop emoji because that can get you thrown off the platform. Really? Mm-hmm. It is that specific mm-hmm. and, to me, absurd, especially that these two things came down at the same time. Like, I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure where the free speech concerns come in, but when they constrict your use of the eggplant emoji so much, it seems like that should qualify to me. Mm-hmm. And so, the, I mean, the eggplant emoji aspect is is one of a much larger piece right like sexual censorship is much more than just what emojis get used on these platforms it is it is uh i mean the reason that vegetable and fruit emojis are used at all is because people cannot use their actual content right there is no penis or vulva emoji that people could just use for that kind of thing so they Mm -hmm. find metaphors and kind of agree on things that that they know mean something else A lot of sexual content is just not allowed on any social media platform. Facebook and Instagram have very strict rules against sexual content, you know, nudity of almost all kinds. Most people have heard about kind of the the female versus male nipple debate and how much argument has happened around that. Mm -hmm. A lot of platforms, even ones that it could be argued built their popularity on sexual content, uh, such as Tumblr is the big one that people know about, had a whole bunch of communities based around pornography back in the old days. When it was bought by Yahoo, they just went through and removed all of what they call adult content from the platform um, in kind of one fell swoop. And now it's a place where sexual content is also banned, despite it Mm -hmm. being such a big part of their success in the early days. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is a big problem 
because sex is really important. <laughs> it's a topic mm -hmm. that is relevant to literally every single person on the planet. Like maybe you're not having it. Maybe you don't want to have it. Maybe you're ace. Maybe it's a traumatic thing for you, but all of those things, it's still relevant. It's still important. Like, I don't care who you are. It's still a part of your life in some way, but mm -hmm. we just, we don't talk about it. People have crazy high amounts of shame around it. Uh, it leads in part to a whole lot of the societal problems we're seeing, you know, relevant to sex and relationships. And social media is by, in theory, they're, you know, taking these societal values of not talking about it and translating it to the platform. But what they're really doing is like amplifying this existing horrible, horrifying bias in society and making it a lot worse. One of mm -hmm. my... Uh, favorite examples, favorite slash least favorite examples of this is that there is a link to a page on Scarletine, uh, which is a fairly popular sex ed website for teenagers. They have a page on barrier use, which includes how to use a condom. So it's literally a website about how to use a condom, which includes diagrams, because if you try to explain how to use a condom without diagrams, it's actually quite difficult. You cannot send a link to this page in a one-to-one -one private message on Facebook Messenger. You put it in, you hit enter, and you get this little red error message that pops up that says, like, this link violates our community standards. Now, there is a thing on that that says, if you want to, if you think we've got this wrong, please let us know. But if you click on that link and you go to the form, they're sure to tell you that they get a lot of these and they probably won't reply or do anything about it. So that's mm -hmm. a thing. Wow. Uh, now, I, I do want to note with that example that all these platforms that ban sexual content, almost all of them have in their rules an asterisk that says, okay, but except for educational content, like that stuff's good. Right. People should know how to use a condom, right? Like that, that's a line that goes off pretty well with most people, mm -hmm. but that's, what's in the rules. It's not how it plays out in practice. So when it comes to the actual content that we're talking about, could you maybe provide a little bit more breadth of an explanation in terms of what actually constitutes sexual content because i know that when a lot of people hear that they immediately jump to uh, pornography mm -hmm. and while it's certainly you know a large amount of the sexual content there's a lot more to it it is yes it's a a very wide spectrum of content that we're talking about here including a lot of things that people probably don't think about i'll start with kind of uh, what I'm not talking about that I want on the platform. And that's kind of some stuff that's obviously bad, right? Like mm -hmm. child abuse imagery, revenge porn, you know, things that kind of uh, exploit or manipulate people in the sake of gaining money or whatever. Uh, all of those things need to not be on the platform, mm -hmm. but not because they're sexual, because they exploit and manipulate people. When we're talking mm -hmm. about sexual content, it is everything from kind of how to put a condom to hardcore pornography, but also like, clips from HBO shows, uh, full, just like artistic nudity type things. You know, there's a lot of things that you see in mainstream media, such as Fifty Shades of Grey, for example, both the movie and the book <laughs> that like, if you took that uh -huh. out of context, you'd be like, this is kind of porn. This is kind of porn. Mm -hmm. Um, because there is no good definition for that. There just isn't. Sure. Sure. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at, at this point, a lot of the things that you're, you're looking at, um, have been, what are all these massive platforms doing when it comes to the censorship of all this sort of content? You've come at this from the perspective of, you know, someone who understands technology, who has a background in tech, but I'm curious to know, how did you actually get here in your career? I mean, 
you know, what drew you to this particular project aside from those two articles that you, uh, that you referenced? Yeah, those two articles certainly wasn't the first time in my life that I've thought about this connection. So other than being just someone who works in tech and a fairly sexually driven person myself, this has just always been an area of overlap for me. When I was in college, uh, I went to MIT where I majored in computer science and I minored in women's and gender studies with a focus on sex and sexuality. After college, I went out to Silicon Valley. Uh, before, as you mentioned, I came to DC and worked for the White House. I was at Google for four years. But before that, I was actually working in business intelligence for kink.com, a BDSM pornography company that works out there. So my career has been kind of in and out of this field the entire time. This is the first time really that I've had a gig that combined them so fully in an advocacy mm-hmm. way. But the the ideas of sex and technology and how they intersect has been pretty integral to both both my personal life and my career all the way through. Gotcha. Actually, in that sense, is there any history that we should know about of how sex and sexual content on the internet has evolved that sort of leads us to how we got to this point in time? Oh, uh, I mean, there's lots and it's very complicated. Um, mm-hmm. The big one that some folks might have heard of and that has caused the most recent wave of changes is the passage of SESTA-FOSTA through Congress. It was a package of bills that was intended to, or, well, I'm pretty, I'm, I, I get a little prickly when talking about the, the intentions and actual effects of the bill. It, it was a package of bills whose stated aim, let me say it that way, whose stated aim was to stop sex trafficking via the internet which is great. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. That's a good goal. No one should be trafficked. That is bad. Right. What it actually did is start a kind of wholesale removal of any kind of sexually interactive content via the internet, specifically targeting um, sex workers and content around that. Mm. So this is when we saw the removal of personal ads from Craigslist it was funny. I had an interview for this project a few days ago uh, with someone who met their husband on Craigslist. And really? They were yeah, they were bemoaning oh. Sesta Fosta to me because they were like, I never would have met my partner without those ads. Oh, um, wow. Like Sesta Fosta has, has not actually been tested in courts. So mm-hmm. this removal and this tightening of rules, like I, you know, I haven't, Facebook didn't consult me before they made this emoji decision, but I'm pretty sure you can link it back to this kind of legal fear based on these bills around um, solicitation and what they focus on there. It just introduced a lot of legal fear and worry. And my view of it is that sex is not considered an important positive subject. Mm -hmm. Like it's a thing, it's a thing that, okay, you know, we know people are into it, but like, maybe we have this view that porn is bad. We all, we're all uncomfortable talking about sex. We know a lot of people are going to get angry if we like leave this content on our platform. Now there's a legal thing. We're just going to take it down. Right. Like it's for the good of humanity. Uh, you know, it's kind of easing their minds. Like we're just going to take it down. We don't want to deal with this. It's sort of like a cover your ass measure where these people are just, it is exactly a cover your ass measure. Yeah. And it's really easy because, uh, there are a lot of groups that will applaud you for doing that. Mm. Right. It's kind of hard in this day and age to stand up uh, and say the radical thing that like sex is good. Maybe we should talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's not, can you imagine someone in Congress standing up to that in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA being like, actually, I think sex should be allowed on these platforms like that. Right. I don't think that would go over well. And it's a damn shame because I'm pretty sure every single congressperson has had sex at some point in their lives. And even if they haven't, their parents sure did. That's fair. So certainly hear you, like sex is is an incredibly important thing in everyone's life. 
I'm certain that there's going to be people that are listening to you making this argument, maybe on this podcast, maybe in a blog post that you're writing, that are going to bristle at this idea of having these platforms be a little bit more uh, spicy. Um, I, the thing that I wonder is, what do you actually envision these platforms looking like in a better world, right? It's not just sort of like you go to facebook.com and all of a sudden you see a bunch of porn, um, but, site now, yeah. Right, exactly. But but what is what is the actual vision that you've got for what these things can be? Yeah. So uh, there's a great question. Part of that is what I'm doing this fellowship to build. So mm-hmm. you know, check back in six months, and I'll have a better answer for you. Sure. The biggest thing, though, to keep in mind is that consent is important above all else. Like the reason that uh, you know I talked about um, child abuse imagery and revenge porn. The reason that those things are problems are because they're massive violations of consent and abuse. I do not want anybody to have to see porn who does not want to see porn. That goes against kind of the very tenets of why I want this stuff to be available in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I do think educational content should be able to be viewed by everybody, should be publicly accessible. Um, That is, in theory, what they should do according to their own current rules. So some of it is just changing their implementation to match their stated policies. But if people want to see sexual content, you know, our our society has set our society and our law has set the age of 18 to be the kind of general standard for when this kinds of things are okay to see. So let's just add an 18 plus filter. Like maybe people can set themselves, uh, you know, when they upload content, they're like, this is sexual content. Please put it behind this filter. When you go to default the site, when you first log in, it's set to not show you this thing. This is exactly how Google safe search works, right? Right. Like. Google is not in a million years going to remove porn from search because they'd lose like 30% of their traffic. Mm-hmm. But what they do want to do is make sure that no one sees porn who doesn't want to see porn. So when you mm-hmm. go to Google, they have safe search defaulted to on. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to see some of the more spicy content, as you called it, yeah. you just go and you turn it <laughs> off and then you get your spicy content. Right. Uh, and, and that in kind of a broad strokes is pretty much how I envision these working. Okay. Now, I mean, one of the factors that really complicates things is you know, a piece here of, of how you decide what goes behind that filter and what doesn't. It's that sort of mm-hmm. the, the content moderation, as it were. Uh, yeah. How do we solve that problem? <laughs> well, you don't. That's not a thing that's ever going to be solved. Mm. Content moderation is very, very difficult. We're seeing that now already with the wrestling around hate speech and violent content and terrorist content. There's always things that slip through and then they cause big international incidents, right? Like there's always... Um, Humans do terrible, terrible things to each other. Mm-hmm. And that's always been the case, but now it's in our faces a lot more because it's so easy to share. And so these platforms are always constantly trying to keep up with some of the bad stuff. And so it's a really hard problem. It's never, ever going to be perfectly solved. People are going to keep finding new ways to get around rules and get around this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But tech companies were created to deal with hard problems. <laughs> Like the fact that Facebook exists, that the cloud exists, that artificial intelligence exists. These things are really, really hard problems that people have done amazing things uh, to go, you know, down that path towards creating them. So the, the fact that content moderation is a really, really hard thing is not at all an argument about why we shouldn't try to do it better. Now, one of the things that comes to mind for me immediately is that there's actually been quite a lot of federal investment in research for a lot of the technologies that you just mentioned, AI, Mm -hmm. for instance. Do you have a sense that this is something that maybe we should be looking into more as as a country, as a society, to actually invest our own dollars into researching how to do this more appropriately? How to do content moderation in general? Mm -hmm. 
There are people who focus on that as an academic topic who can speak much better this to me. A lot of kind of First Amendment folks that have a lot of opinions about content moderation. I am not convinced that that's something that should be regulated at a federal level. Okay. I think there are some small parts of it. Um, you know, there there is like a, I can't remember the name right now, but there is a terrorist content group. There are child abuse imagery groups that work with pieces of the federal government specifically for those areas to make sure that like the government gets laws and the government gets oversight and that for the really serious things, there is some interaction there. Um, one of the big concerns around kind of the government actually getting involved in content moderation as a whole is that then there would be one solution to this problem. And right now kind of each platform is finding its own. And while there would be some scaling benefits to that, as, as much of a fan as I am of government as a concept, like government does not get things hundred percent right either ever. And Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. a lot harder to kind of change that once it gets set in policy. So content moderation as a broad concept is not something that I think the government should really kind of throw its hat into. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I know that we have so many more topics to cover. Uh, (laughs) I think that we should probably take a quick break right now and we'll come back soon to uh, cover some more, some more spicy topics. Finding yourself interested in Claire's work, be sure to follow her on Instagram at Claire Bailey. That's at C L A R E B A Y L E Y. back with my fellow fellow and dear friend Claire Bailey uh, talking Hello. about sexual censorship in social media. Um, Claire, one of the things that you mentioned when we were first talking about this was about this idea of the journey from discomfort to acceptance as part of how we grow in accepting this kind of you know uh, conversation, uh, talking more about sex, being more open about sex. And I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that sort of journey, on that sort of path. Yeah, it's a big part of this topic. Uh, this, this may seem like a strange thing to say, but discomfort is actually a pretty big part of my work around this. I remember when I was interviewing with the people who run the TAP program for this fellowship, in one of the later stage interviews, they asked me, you know, um, the group I was talking to at the time was a, a whole bunch of like young women of color. And they were like, so if you came to do this fellowship, you'd be at Harvard and you would get to be the person in the room who says the word sex a lot in front of a whole bunch of middle-aged white dudes who may, who are very uncomfortable with that. Like, are you okay? <laughs> are, are you ready to be the person who does that? Uh, and my reply was basically, yes, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> 
because nothing changes if you stay in your comfort mm-hmm. zone. And this is true with sex as with so many other things, but I think with sex, it's particularly weaponized. Right. Um, you know, we're at a place where uh, maybe we're really bad at talking about race, but as a society, it sure as fuck being talked about. Um, this is something that on like a deep personal level, people have a great sense of sexual shame in the sense that this is not a thing to be shared and discussed and related. And that's, that's a problem both for society and for people personally. Can you describe more about why that's a problem? Yeah. Uh, I mean, most sex involves more than one person. Masturbation is certainly a valid and very enjoyable form of sex, but a lot of sex that we're talking about here involves more than one person. And communication is really important. I cannot stress this enough. Communication is really important. A lot of the examples, and this also kind of gets uh, to the heart of why I think sexual content should kind of be free to be other places. Cause I think if it was less stigmatized, we get a lot better quality of it. Mm-hmm. People's lessons about romance and sex and relationships are taken from really shitty examples, you know, to uh, go back to 50 shades of gray like that, that book that is that the book, that movie, that series is so popular. And that relationship is so unhealthy. Mm. Like as someone who's worked for a kinking company, who's deep into the kink scene myself, like that, that book's portrayal of BDSM is so incredibly unhealthy. That book's portrayal of like relationships is unhealthy. That book's portrayal of just sex in general is unhealthy. And people are taking that and copying it. You know, mm. the same is true with a lot of the old seventies, eighties rom-com movies that, you know, even back when I was uh, growing up and a teenager in, um, you know, the, the 90s and early aughts was these like kind of models of romanticism. Mm-hmm. And from our modern perspective, we look back and we're like, yeah, that's stalking. Right. <laughs> it's just stalking. Well, so how do you cross this, this issue that we have now where because of how people are exposed to sex, which a lot of it is through this content that you can just very easily and freely find on the internet. People are learning about sex, about themselves, about how they approach it in a wide variety of ways. They're being exposed to it in different ways. And because of how these these platforms tend to work, it also tends to be siloed, right? We tend to see reinforcing uh, uh, content and content that, you know, fits the bubble that we might, you know, be in for some reason. So how does it differ, you know, now learning about sex on the internet versus, you know, having the sex talk with your parents or having sexual education in schools, which, I mean, that's certainly not necessarily great either. Would you say that we're better off now that we have the ability to learn about sex online or that we're worse off because it's controlled by these platforms? I'd say we're better off as a whole. I'd say there's a lot of room for improvement, but I think we're better off as a whole. The The thing that comes to mind immediately that like I don't need to think beyond to really give an answer to that is access for people in minority communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that both kind of obviously in um, the LGBT space uh, for people of, you know, non-heterosexual sexuality, people of trans, people of non-binary, asexuals, that type of thing, where there's not a whole lot of understanding in society and populations of people with those characteristics are can be somewhat rare especially depending on which bubble you're in as you said and the internet lets those people find others and learn about themselves by connecting with others who are the same Mm -hmm. and that there's no substitute for that 
you know, when I feel like maybe parents uh, felt it was better when they got control of the information that went to their kids, but I'm not sure that kids would agree that it was better when they got to control uh, the information because, you know, what if your kids, what if your kids gay and you don't talk to them about gay issues, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're, you're never going to know. They're never going to talk to you. It's just gonna be this huge big thing. Yeah. Um, so despite all uh, the horrible content that is on the internet, there are ways and just really brought those communities together. That is just so valuable. And is the censorship that we're seeing that you're talking about here of sexual content, how is it affecting those communities that people are finding themselves in? And what is it doing to the shape of those communities or the ways that those communities can actually interact? It is, uh, I think this will come out as no surprise to anybody who works in the advocacy space. Those communities are being censored disproportionately. (laughs) Mm. There are legions of examples of this that are easy to find on the internet. In summary, the further from a young, thin, straight white woman you are, the more likely you are to have your content removed. So people, you know, um, non-white folks, older folks, people with larger body sizes, uh, people of minority sexualities, all that type of thing. Content is censored much more frequently than quote-unquote mainstream content. Mm -hmm. No one's quite sure why. If someone at Facebook hears this and they know why, please give me a call because I'd love an answer to that. I I don't think it's intentional, right? Right. Like no one sits down and is like, we're going to ban gay content at a higher rate than straight content. Like it's 2020. No one makes that intentional decision. One of the theories is that a lot of the content moderation is outsourced to different parts of the world that have different values Mm -hmm. that aren't those of San Francisco and Silicon Valley where the policies are created. So the policies might treat all of this stuff equally, Mm -hmm. but the implementation on the ground is done by people um, who see a lot of content quickly all day and their default viewpoint may not match that of the people who wrote the thing. So we're not entirely sure why that happens, but it's, it's become pretty clear that it is happening. It's affecting those minority communities disproportionately, which obviously is pretty terrible because they're the ones who need more information and more support because they don't get it from mainstream society. So, I mean, this points to something that's really interesting, which is that, as you noted, a lot of these tech companies are based in Silicon Valley or based in San Francisco, which generally speaking has been a more progressive, more, especially um, in terms of sexuality, uh, uh, liberal sort of place. And yet what we're seeing is that a lot of these uh, companies and these platforms are basically going against the same principles of the of the location where they come from and essentially you know by by extension of the people that make them up uh, how do you how do you figure that came to be is it that there's influence coming onto those companies from the outside is it that the companies themselves are seeing just market forces um, or, well, or is it Tesla Fosta as you mentioned earlier yeah um, I, I think it's complicated and so in a part all of the above the first thing that I think I would point to, though, is that I I don't necessarily agree that California and Silicon Valley is as liberally minded about sexuality as even they perhaps think they are. Mm-hmm. Like, they certainly are about, um, like, gay, lesbian, and bi issues. They're doing decently on trans issues. But those have, those have kind of become, like, the cool hot topics, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff that hasn't come forth yet is, you know should we have pornography on our platforms? I've, you know, I lived in Silicon Valley for six years and worked for a porn company for part of that time. And I met plenty of people who were very anti-porn. When you spin the argument in terms of these disproportionately affected minority communities, they can all agree that that's an issue, but it's much bigger than that. 
and that's a harder point to make. When I say it's much bigger than that, I mean that, you know, straight people are also vastly affected by this. Like I want to, I want to be very clear on this point. This is not an issue that only affects like gay people or trans people or other minorities whose issues, you know, are important and deserve to be catered to. But like, Mm -hmm. there are are a whole lot of people who would consider themselves uh, of mainstream sexuality that have been told a lot of really shitty information about their bodies that carry a lot of shame um, that put themselves or like stay in a lot of unhealthy relationships. Uh, there are people who have a lot of bad sex and maybe they don't even realize it because they've never thought about it because they can't talk about it and they have no other examples to compare to. Mm-hmm. And I think that the people who run these Silicon Valley companies are in that population. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it seems like a weird quote to be out here and be like, well, I think Mark Zuckerberg is still probably having a lot of bad sex, but Probably. <laughs> probably. He doesn't seem like that much of a guy who's put a whole lot of thought into his own um, gender and sex life, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're taught very simplistic scripts from a very early age that really get us in a rut and keep us in this kind of shame box. Right. And that's the part that, not the identity part, it's the, the personal shame, the like personal kind of erotic sensual self that is stuck in these boxes and kept down. And that is not something that is recognized or um, kind of top of mind for the quote-unquote Silicon Valley liberals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at this point, now we're talking about and getting into how we learn about all this sort of stuff, how we are taught, how we educate each other and educate the next generation about sex and sexuality and gender. And, you know, you and I have had a lot of conversations about gender and masculinity in particular. Um, It's, uh, you know, one of my favorite topics to, to discuss, but... One of the things that I love about this this particular project that you're working on is that it challenges a little bit about who gets to decide what is educational content. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it brings about a question, which is, you know, how do we figure out as a society who those decision makers should be and how broad those decisions should be? Because on one hand, you have the former example that we talked about of you know, the parents giving their kids the talk about the birds and the bees. And there is certainly an argument to be made about how, you know, a parent should have a say in the education of their child. On the other hand, there's also an argument that should be made about how, you know, society has a lot of educational goodness to give to the next generation, and it takes a village. And sometimes there's, there's conflict in that, right? And so how do you view that conflict? How do you view you know, the, the, basically the decision of, of what ends up being appropriate for educational content yep. through this lens. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's, that's a great topic. If you look at the system right now, the way it is where abstinence only is still taught, um, in a majority of American schools, I grew up in Arkansas, I got abstinence only education in school in a system where children are denied a lot of information where maybe their parents don't give them a lot. If they give them a talk, they give them some facts where the school doesn't give them a lot of information where it's banned on social media and on the places they spend a lot of their time. I would argue that pornography is currently educational content because of how many people learn about sex from it. Mm, I don't think it should be. (laughs) I I think it's a, a pretty terrible teacher. Right. Porn should be considered educational content in the current educational thing just because of how many people fucking learn about sex from mm. it. It's crazy. I mean, anybody, as part of this project, I've been interviewing a lot of folks, some around my age, some younger, some older, and asking them about their current experiences on social media and sexual content, but also just also about their puberty 
time and how they learned about sex. And the number of people that have said, like, I learned about sex from something that would be considered a mainstream educational resource is zero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally zero. I certainly didn't. Right. Yeah. I, you know, um, I have a, a friend with a teenager in the California school system right now. And uh, actually some of the stuff that he's been learning in his sex ed class um, sounds pretty great. And I would have loved that information. So maybe there are a few places mm. uh, where hopefully that answer will change if I can ask them down the line, yeah. but no, you learn about it from the content you want to see. Like, the stuff that parents, again, it comes down to discomfort, right? The the stuff that parents are comfortable talking about with their kids only goes so far. The stuff that is allowed in schools and on social media only goes so far. And the big thing that is missed in almost all of this is pleasure, is fun, which, let's remember, is the reason most people have sex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you get how to use a condom and how your body works and all these different kinds of things like that's great that's all very important information that everybody should know but then also like how do you know what you want yeah how do you know what kind of treatment you should expect from a partner how do you know what kind of treatment you should say no to Mm -hmm. right how do you know what's a healthy way to show someone your interest and what's not all these things that you know have become very high profile societal issues all the way up to, um, you know, government confirmation hearings of various kinds. Yeah. Like yeah. that it's also missing and where people go next is pornography for the most part, mm. pornography or chat rooms or partners who may or may not have a better education themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's just this huge gap where people learn, they imbue this misinformation and then they might never talk to anybody about it ever again. Mm-hmm. because everybody is really ashamed of it. And so that's just all the information they have. So anyway, not a good, there's, there's nothing I can uphold as a sternly example all around. Sure. You know, I think there are pieces that I love that I can pick from all over. Someone told me recently about a TV show. I think it was um, from one of the Nordic countries um, where it was like six people are on a stage talking to children And all those people on stage are naked and they have a wide variety of bodies in kind of all different ways. And they're talking to the kids like about their bodies and about how they work. And the kids are allowed to just ask all these different questions and see these different representations. And that is awesome. Like how valuable would that be when everything else we see is like this very kind of manicured, plucked, perfected Photoshop view of the human body. Mm -hmm. And I also, that would never in a hundred years be allowed on American television. Right. Or YouTube, for that matter, right. as long as it had someone who identified as a woman on the stage. Mm. Um, no, I, actually, anybody, because it'd be full nudity. Anyway, so and there's also uh, some books that have come out recently. I'm a big fan of a book called Come As You Are by um, Emily Nagoski. Uh, there, there are a lot of people kind of moving in this field right now that I think have a, a great message and are doing really good kind of writing and educating on their own. But in terms of like central coordinated orgs or people who were like teaching the whole thing right uh, i don't know I, I don't know what to tell you <laughs> so really even though there are certain examples that are doing well there's no one that you can really point to that's saying like this is the example that we should all be following i can't and honestly i'm not sure that we should all be doing the same thing mm. like sexuality is such an individual exploration mm-hmm. that if there was one defined standard that we all went through we'd probably fucking miss something right like part of it, part of it has to be teaching people to explore for themselves. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer, right? Someone needs to come up with an organization to teach people to figure it out for themselves. But mm-hmm. that's partly a great idea and partly kind of a cop out there. Yeah. Well, 
I'll take the great yeah. idea half of that and leave the leave the cop out <laughs> for later. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, yeah. I think that I've gotten all the uh, questions out that I wanted to ask you, and it's been awesome to get to hear more of your perspective, more of your project, and and more of your descriptions of what the problems are that we're facing in in a space where honestly not a lot of people are thinking about this and and so i'm really grateful that you are part of this fellowship program with me um and thanks for thanks for the time yeah happy to be here always happy to be that person in the room who gets to say the word sex a lot Join us next time as we talk to the other fellows about the problems they're tackling. Thanks for listening.